Godfather Vince Lampert back on the channel to just take your questions. And uh, just a quick introduction, if you don't know who Vince is, I said in the title of this video he's an experienced exorcist, which is completely true. Father Vincent Lampert is an American Roman Catholic priest and the designated exorcist of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese in Indianapolis. Father Vincent received his exorcism training in Rome. If you would like to learn more about him, I actually did a, a really long interview with him. I believe it was around 90 minutes. We talked about his background, where, he's, where he came from, his training in Rome, how many exorcists are currently operating in the United States. We covered a lot of different things. It was a really great interview, and it's also our top-viewed video on this channel, which is crazy. It's, uh, I checked this morning, and it's about 630,000 views right now, and there's no end in sight. So I decided, why don't I have him back on the channel to do just a Q&A with the audience. If you have a question for Father Vincent today, then you can leave it in the live chat. I, I've, I'm anticipating that we're going to get a lot of super chat sent in, people asking questions. So pro more than likely, those are the types of questions that we'll be able to get to today are the, uh, the super chats. And thank you in advance if you're considering sending one in. So before we get started, Father Vincent, is there anything that you would like to say, maybe fill out any details? Uh, I'm just happy to be back on the show. My goal would be to help educate people on what the uh, Catholic Church believes and teaches about the reality of evil and the practice of exorcism. So it's an opportunity uh, really just to educate ourselves and really focus on the importance of faith. That's great. I also wanted to uh, go ahead and talk about your book a little bit. I've got it linked in the description of this video. So for people who are maybe wanting to get a little bit more information and knowledge about exorcisms and, and the kind of work that you do, uh, talk about your book a little bit called, I think it's just titled Exorcisms or Exorcism. Yeah, Exorcism, the Battle Against uh, Satan and His Demons. So people ask me, what did I do during COVID-19 lockdown? Well, I was encouraged to uh, write a book, Emmaus Road Publishing, uh, based out of Steubenville, Ohio, the uh, St. Paul Institute was just for there. Biblical the St. Paul Institute for Biblical Theology. Scott Hahn and his group asked me if I would be willing just to um, give some uh, insight, share my story about exorcism. It's something I've been doing over the last 16 years now. So it was an opportunity just to give people a pretty basic understanding of what the church believes and teaches about the subject. Well, yeah, so like I said, I've got the, his book linked in the description if you want to find out more. And the, the book was actually just a, a really e easy read, but it was also very informative. So I definitely recommend picking it up. All right, so here is our first question. Uh, and this one is a little bit on the lighter side. He said, Easy Boy 101 says, How often does a exorcist exercise their ability to exercise? <laughs> I like the sense of humor. I think it's important. You know, uh, <clears throat> I'm a priest in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, so my primary responsibility would be to pastor the two parishes that I'm responsible for here in Brookville, Indiana. But probably at least half of my time now is taken up with the Ministry of Exorcism. Some exorcists are publicly known, some are not. Those of us who are publicly known probably receive a greater number of callers. So I currently get about 1,800 people a year. Who reach out to me who believe they're dealing with evil and are seeking the help of the church there you go and uh, so, so about 1800 people a year and then in our interview you were saying that only really about 
you know, one in 5,000 people that come to you are actually demon-possessed. So that's that's interesting. So most of the people, it seems, if we're just going by statistics, it seems like most of the people that come to you each year are, you know, they're you're sending them to the relevant professionals like mental health or you know, whatever else. So is that is that the case? Is it, is it very rare that you find someone who who needs this kind of you know exorcist help? Well, the church would identify four different types of extraordinary demonic activity: demonic possession. Obviously, we've been talking about that. There can be infestation, the presence of evil in a location or with an object. There can be uh, vexation, which are physical attacks, obsession, which are mental attacks. So, yeah, it's true that one out of every 5,000 may be demonic possession, but there are thousands of cases that I deal with every year that have to deal with infestation, vexation, and obsession. And even if I may not be able to help the person who contacts me, they may live uh, in another state, they live in another country, but my goal would be to try to connect them with someone in their local area who can give them the, uh, the care that they're seeking. All right, we've got a question from Gina M. This is a super chat, so thank you for sending this in, Gina. She says, what sort of safety precautions are in place during an exorcism to ensure the person's safety and uh, youngest age at which church will give an exorcism? Good questions. Yeah, so the location would always be uh, determined by itself. So it would be uh, an exorcism would only take place in a sacred space, inside of a church or in a chapel. I would be very much aware of anything that's around there that somebody, once they manifest evil, might use as a weapon, such as throwing a chair, trying to grab something off a table and, and toss it. Again, I would be aware of the entire surroundings. Most importantly, there's a prayer that's said at the very beginning of the ritual itself, asking God to watch over, bless, and protect, and safeguard everyone who's involved in this particular prayer of the church. When it comes to age, the church would say that no one under the age of reason could bring evil upon themselves. The age of reason would be the age of seven, according to Catholic teaching. That's why that's when a child would make his or her first confession and then First Holy Communion. So if someone is under the age of reason, then another parent or guardian would bear responsibility for the presence of evil in a child's life. But an exorcism literally could be done on anyone of any age, as long as all the proper uh, protocols are followed. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily related to safety, although it might have been, but I remember reading in your book how you brought in, or, or at least the priest that you were originally training with, brought in some you know, I think it was just a plastic bag and maybe some paper towels just to, you know, you know is, that, is that something common? You, you, is there anything that you bring in with you? Yes, because I would want to prepare myself for the pretty common manifestations that take place. So when it comes to demon possession, oftentimes a person will begin foaming at the mouth and growling and snarling. Uh, again, anything to try to disrupt the prayer of the church. The priest had trained me the very first time that I set in on an exorcism. He brought in the paper towel on the plastic bag, and when the demon manifested and the person began foaming at the mouth, that's when he reached over and tore off a paper towel, wiped the person's face, and then placed the uh, paper towel in the bag. So he was pretty much uh, very much aware of what was going to take place, and he was prepared for that. As someone who was experienced in, in doing these. So uh, a question that, that kind of popped up in my mind was, 
do you guys do anything in terms of like restraints? Because I I feel like that's something to be concerned about. Is it, in our previous interview that we did, you were saying how someone grabbed up a, a metal desk chair and raised it above their heads, and that to me sounds like there's not a whole lot of restraint that's being done, or maybe there was and they broke free. What what kind of things do you do in terms of uh, restraining these people? Which again is is for everyone's safety. It's not you know this is not to to, to harm them. It's to it's to keep everyone safe. Well, no one would ever be restrained or tied down or anything like that. That would be inappropriate, uh, again, because uh, you could put the person in some type of vulnerable position. And the truth is that if it truly is a demon possession, then one of the signs of demon possession is superhuman strength. We can think in Mark's Gospel, you know, the man who was possessed by legion in chapter 5, shackles, chains wouldn't even hold him. So a demon wouldn't be constrained by, you know, physical means, which is why we would rely on spiritual means, asking God to protect and safeguard everyone that's present in the room. Because uh, tying someone down or with chains would be ineffective against a demon. All right, let's move to uh, another question from Caleb. Thank you for your super chat. He says, do demon possessions occur more in third world countries or does geography play no role? Well, geography plays no role in how the devil can impact the lives of people. But I will say that the effectiveness of exorcisms is uh, probably more real in third world countries. First of all, they would believe in the reality of a spiritual cause for what somebody is going through. In the Western world, oftentimes if somebody is dealing with demon possession, they might quickly be written off as dealing with the mental health issue. But in third world countries, they would certainly accept that as a possibility. The other reason would be, you know, I always say there's a difference between exorcisms performed in uh, parts of the world where the good news of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed and in what I would call the apostate world, meaning where Christianity has been preached, but people have accepted it and then turned their back on it. And my experience is in the apostate world, when people are dealing with demon possession, demons tend to uh, make a greater claim on the lives of the individuals because they knew the good news, but they chose to walk away from it. In other parts of the world where the gospel perhaps has never been proclaimed, if someone is demon-possessed and the gospel is preached, those exorcisms are immediate and effective. Okay, we've got uh, another good question here from Punchbowl Haircut. He says... Uh, can demons affect one's thoughts and emotions? Uh, and I'm taking this as a separate question. His next one is, can they cause depression and anxiety? Demons play on a person's memory and imagination. So they don't know what we're thinking, but they have uh, intu- They can be very intuitive. They can use deductive reasoning. They can watch us, observe us. They can think how we might uh, react in a certain situation, what we might be thinking. But again, only God himself knows the, uh, the mind of a human person. But a demon can impact our memory and our imaginations. You know, demons causing depression, anxiety, that can be a cause simply because we live in a fallen world, the reality of sin. The devil may not cause every problem in the world, but he's certainly an opportunist. So he could take advantage of something like COVID-19, which is leaving a lot of people in isolation and then use that as an opportunity to bring about more d- 
depression, loneliness, fear, anxiety, worry, and so on. So again, he can take advantage of a situation to try to advance his kingdom. Okay, let's move on to uh, another question. This one is from QQ-S. Could Emily Rose have survived if she were closer to God from the beginning? So maybe give some background here as well. Who is Emily Rose? So this is the, uh, the movie that's based on the true story, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, whereby a priest was working with someone, and uh, the person ended up ultimately dying. And the question, I think, is asking, can you be closer to God? And that's even the role of an exorcist, is to help somebody draw closer to God, because it's not just a matter of casting a demon out. It's about inviting the person into a deeper relationship with God. So it could have been that perhaps in this case that the person was really tormented, which is why uh, maybe it did not end so well. But again, it's you know closer to God. That's kind of a kind of guessing where the person may be. Any exorcist in working with somebody would want to make sure that somebody is in a good frame of mind spiritually and mentally, which is why you know a person going through an exorcism would have to have some type of psychiatric evaluation. It isn't that the church is doubting that there's a presence of a demon, but the church and person needs to be mentally strong to go through the ritual of the church. So again, that mental strength is important. And it could just be that in the case of Emily Rose, maybe that the person was just so fractured that they weren't really willing to allow God to really reach them, which is why the case ended in such a tragic manner. So something that we talked about in our previous interview was the fact that like there's a kind of myth out there about demon possession where you know you can just it's almost like catching a cold. It's like anybody can sort of be infected by a demon. But you argue in 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 your book and elsewhere and even interviews that I've seen with you is that demon possession happens when you personally open yourself up to some kind of evil reality, right? So I think it'd, it'd be important maybe to talk about that for just a little bit. Oh, absolutely, because the person, you know, if you're a faith-filled person, I always say the devil's already on the run. We have to give an entry point into evil in our lives, and oftentimes the entry point can be when we engage in activities that are contrary to what the Bible would tell us on how we should be living our lives. You know, a good example would be practicing the occult. There's a lot of people today that are engaged in, you know, witchcraft and magic and tarot cards and Ouija boards and, you know, the list goes on and on. And all of these can be an avenue that the devil will use to try to create an opening into our lives. But if we're faith-filled people, if, you know, we're going to church, if we're praying, we're living out a relationship with Jesus Christ, then the devil's already on the run. So we're the ones that have to uh, give the devil an avenue to break into our lives. And if we remain spiritually strong, we don't have to worry about that. But if we're weak in our commitment to the Lord, then we could be creating a, uh, I don't know, a weak link, if you will, whereby the devil will use that as an opportunity to um, make a connection with us. So th- this is uh, not necessarily related to exorcism, but something that you said just now, I want to get your, your thoughts just as a priest. As, apart from all the exorcism stuff, what is, what is like a really good way that someone can draw closer to the Lord? I think, you know, first of all, one commits their, their life to Christ. They have to have that desire to have that relationship with him. 
to realize the relationship needs to be personal and communal. So we need to have that relationship that we foster each and every day through prayer, how we choose to live our lives. Communal in the sense, the important role of the church. You know, Jesus doesn't want anybody to walk alone. Even when he sent his disciples out, he sent them out in pairs. So the important role that other people play in our spiritual growth and development should never be discounted. You know, the devil would try to isolate people, you know, the notion of divide and conquer. So again, if we're united with Christ in a faith community, a church community, then we can find that strength that we need, perhaps to overcome temptation that might come our way. So I think, again, the best way that we grow in our relationship with Christ is living out that choice each and every day. Mm, I love that. All right, so here's Siraj Lama. And he says, uh, no questions, love your channel, loved the last session with Father Lampert here on Capturing Christianity. Thanks for coming again. I thought that was just really nice. So uh, so I, I, I wanted to mention again, if you're just joining or if you maybe fast forwarded it and didn't watch the beginning of this video, then I interviewed Father Vince uh, on a separate occasion back dur uh, around Halloween of 2020. And that video on our channel is the, the most viewed channel uh, by far. Well, not, not necessarily by far, but it has potential to grow. I mean, my guess is that this year it's going to, to surpass a million views. It's, it's, it's incredible. But that, that interview was just great. It was a lot of fun. Uh, very, very informative as well. And that is linked in the description of this video if you're interested in watching that. So, uh, so all right, let's get to another question from Raymond Ken, uh, Kenny. He says... Any advice for a man who is getting married in June? I want to live a fulfilling life with my, with my wife in Christ, but struggle from time to time. Well, I think that's true of all of us. We all struggle. Even when we commit our lives to Christ, there may be times when temptation is real. But uh, I think one of the key things is that we always repent. If we find ourselves sinning, we always make a return to the Lord because God is... You know, God's love for us is unconditional. God is always ready to forgive. You know, I think about the story of, of Adam and Eve, the fall in the book of Genesis, when God says to Adam, what have you done? I always like to imagine what would have happened if he simply said, I sinned and I'm sorry. So getting married, I think honesty is a, a key ingredient in communicating with your spouse. There may be times that, uh, you know, maybe the relationship isn't the best, but you remember that God himself has brought you together. You know, getting married to me, that's a vocation. It's a calling from God. Oftentimes if people are having marital problems and somebody tells me they're not happy, one of the things I like to say to them is, well, what do you think God intends? What does God want from this relationship? And oftentimes that's not something that couples having problems have really thought about. So I think getting married, you know, once you put God first in your life, then your spouse has to be the next most important person in your life. There's a great line out there that says, you know, getting married, hopefully one day you'll have a family if that's God's plan for you. But the best thing that a, a father can do for his children is to love their mother. The best thing that a mother can do for her children is to love their father. So couples need to constantly grow in their love for each other and to keep Christ at the center of their lives. It doesn't mean that everything is going to be perfect all the time but it does mean you're going to have the solid foundation on which to build your lives together. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm actually going to skip uh, a little bit back and ask a question that popped up that I think is going to be 
important, and, and maybe it could, it could answer some questions uh, later on. So this one is from Mel Choir, Choir de Dussar. It says, how effective is exorcism? Does it always work? And the answer is that it's always effective, and it always works because the power and the authority is coming from Jesus Christ himself. So it's, it's not me. You know, if we're relying on me, we're all in trouble. But if we're relying on the power and the authority of Jesus Christ that is at work in his church and through his minister, that's the most important thing to focus on. I like to remind people that in an exorcism, Jesus is not a bystander. He's the main actor. And if Christ is truly acting, then evil will always be defeated. Now, there is sometimes that perhaps people aren't willing to really commit their lives to Christ. Maybe they're holding on to some sin in their life that brought about the presence of evil. And people have to ultimately turn everything over to Christ, 100%, the good and the bad, and, and put the entire aspect of their life under the light of Jesus Christ. You know, I tell people a good analogy. If you walk into a room that's infested with bugs and you turn the light on, what happens the bugs all flee and scurry and crawl into every nook and cranny they can find. And one can say that in exorcism, the church is throwing the, Jesus, the light of Jesus Christ on the darkness of the devil and his demons. And when that happens, they will always flee because, again, we're relying on the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Here's something that I was thinking about. So... Going back to this this one in 5,000 figure, most of the people that come to you in, with demon possession type concerns, most of them are not actually dealing with a, a, some kind of demon possessing them. So why do you think that so many people are getting it wrong? Why, why do they think that they're demon possessed when they're not? Because I think perhaps people only think about demon possession. They may not have a good understanding of the other ways that the devil tries to uh, gain an entry point into our lives. You look at like demonic infestation, for example. You know, demons, being pure spirits, we would say they're neither here nor there. We say they're here or there if they're, if they're choosing to act there. So if there's a presence of evil in the location, the answer would be why. You know, did somebody engage in some type of activity there, such as a seance, trying to communicate with the dead, did a horrific crime take place in that location? So there would have to be a reason why evil is choosing to manifest. But again, I think oftentimes people just focus on demon possession, but they don't think of the other ways that the devil is trying to uh, gain an entry point into our lives. Again, we have infestation, the vexation, the physical attacks, and the obsession, the mental attacks. So here's another question, and this one is, uh, is another super chat from Christine Live. And I want to spend some time on this uh, and really unpack what it means because some of these terms in here I don't really understand. She says, my mother's family practice Santeria. Do you know what that is? Santeria. Santeria, yes. It's kind Santeria. of a blending. It's a blending of kind of the Catholic understanding of saints and then blending that in with... Uh, maybe voodoo practices and whatnot. So it's kind of a form of syncretism where people are blending different aspects mm. of different belief. So uh, continuing with her, uh, her question or comment, as a child, I had horrible nightmares of the devil dragging me to hell. It was constant. 
Can Santeria open the door to generational curses for me or my children? I am devoted to Mary of the Seven Sorrows. That's another one. What is what is Mary of the Seven Sorrows? Just just one of the uh, Catholic uh, beliefs, the devotion to our Blessed Mother. So the seven sorrows that she experienced in her life that focus on the different events of the life of Jesus, such as you know being lost in the temple all the way to the crucifixion. So there's significant moments in the life of Jesus that may have caused anguish in her heart. Again, you go back to Santeria, the generational curses. You know, Santeria be perhaps a demon is trying to masquerade as one of the saints of the church. And somebody may create a relationship with that demon, an attachment to the, uh, the family. It could be a generational spirit. So it is in that case where somebody then could be experiencing horrible nightmares. But the best way for that to be dealt with is for the person to go and, and talk with their parish priest. You know, everybody that's dealing with the demonic doesn't necessarily need to see an exorcist. Oftentimes, the best place to go is to the local parish priest. If somebody is not Catholic, and over half the people I talk to are not Catholic, if they belong to another Christian faith tradition, I always encourage them to go and talk to the pastor of their church. You know, that person is their spiritual leader, and as their spiritual leader, the pastor needs to be aware of what the person is going through. Because I I can work with anyone, regardless of their religious background, but if people are going to need ongoing pastoral care, that's going to be provided by their own faith community, their own church home. And so they really need to make sure that their pastor is aware of what they're going through. In cases of generational curses, the best thing to do is just to pray over the person, to pray with them, and uh, using the power of Christ to break that. Because we should never believe that a curse is greater than a blessing. So a curse is something that someone does relying on the power of the devil or his demons to bring about a bad event in a person's life. But a blessing is something that is done to commend a person to God. And so, again, a blessing is always more powerful than a curse. So if somebody believes they've been cursed, they need to go and seek a blessing from God through the church. All right, now next question is from Dominique Dominic S. Capturing Christianity, what's an overview of the procedure for casting out demons? Maybe I can, I don't know, I'm trying to understand. An overview of the procedure, I mean the actual ritual itself, or why do we do what we do? We do would, what we would, do. It seems like oh, they're asking ahead. about the, the ritual, of what happens. The ritual you, itself? Okay. Yeah. So obviously the church does exorcisms because we imitate what Christ himself has done. Jesus performed exorcisms. He always made a distinction between those who were demon-possessed and those who needed physical healing. So he did both. So the church today does recognize that demon possession can occur. It's a liturgical rite for Catholics, so we have a prescribed way for it to be done. There is a ritual itself. The current ritual came out in 1998. It was updated again in 2004 and 5. At that time, it was only in Latin, the official language of the Catholic Church. In 2016, it was translated into English. But the rite itself really is taking the aspects of our Christian faith that the devil has rejected and literally throwing it into his face 
in the face of his demons to defeat him. So an exorcism would begin by blessing the person with holy water, reminding ourselves of our new life in Christ. We would recite the Psalms out of the Old Testament of the Bible. We would read gospel accounts out of the New Testament of Jesus casting out demons. There would be laying on hands, laying on my hands on the head of the person who's possessed, uh, breathing on the face of the person, invoking the Holy Spirit. There would be a prayer directed to God who is asked to bring relief into the life of the person who is suffering. And then there would be a command given to the demon or the demons uh, to depart based on the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And these can be repeated over and over again. But again, I think it's always important to remember that what the church is using to defeat the devil are the very core aspects of our faith that the devil has rejected. Think of baptism. Think of the word of God. So those are the things that will be used to defeat him. Even when Jesus was being tempted in the desert by the devil himself, Jesus defeated him by the word of God. Next question is from Caleb Jackson. Do possessed people actually have the ability to speak in a language they are unfamiliar with, or is that just in the movies? That is true. So there are four signs that the church would look for for someone to be demon-possessed, and one of them would be the ability to speak and understand languages otherwise unknown to the individual, superhuman strength, having elevated perception, and a knowledge of things that a person, yeah, should not otherwise know, and then an aversion to anything of a sacred nature. But why would a demon be able to speak a language that it doesn't otherwise know? And it goes back to the nature of all angels, even before the fall. So angels, when they were created, received infused knowledge. They don't have to learn anything. The best way to think about it is like a computer that's downloaded with information. Angels were downloaded with information as well. So a demon doesn't have to go to school to learn a foreign language. He can just call it up. And so the church would see that as a sign of demon possession. Have you witnessed uh, this sign personally? I have. Often, sometimes that I've seen demons speak, they will speak in uh, maybe an ancient form of Greek or Latin, Aramaic, and Spanish. And the person I know in working with them obviously doesn't know these languages. I like to remind people there's no such thing as an emergency exorcism. You know, it's, it's a process. You know, I, don't want, I want to make sure that a person doesn't really need mental help. And so, again, working with them, getting a, an understanding of their background, I would know ahead of time whether or not the person really was able to speak a foreign language. In so, so in some of these cases, were, was there someone present who, who knew the language in question? Yes, because whenever there's an exorcism being performed, it's not just me and, and the person who's afflicted. It would be me, the person afflicted, a family member, a friend of theirs. I may have a, another priest, a deacon, even lay people that are there to help pray. And if I believe that perhaps I would benefit from somebody who has an understanding of like Latin more than I do or Greek, that person could be present as well. So again, I want to make sure that there's other people in the room that can assist me in my role as an exorcist. So in these cases, and sorry, I'm like kind of camping on this for a second. 
in these cases, what, what, what's something that you've heard, you know, come out of a, I want to say a demon's mouth, but it's kind of like a combination, right? The, the demon is using, in our, in our previous interview, I gave the analogy of like the demon pushing the person out of the driver's seat and getting in the driver's seat of the car. The car is the analogy of the body. What is something that you've heard someone say in a different language? Like what was the specific words they said? Uh, in one occasion, in working with somebody, the demon spoke and said, your God is dead. Because a part of the ritual of exorcism is to show the person a crucifix. Because at the crucifixion, the moment the devil believed that he had won was actually the moment of his defeat. So when the demon manifested, and as I was praying and held out a crucifix, the demon looked at me and shouted and screamed, your God is dead. Was this in English or was it a different language? It was in a different language. Do you recall what language it was? They had spoken. They had spoken in Latin. But I've heard them again before. They'll say to me, "Lots of times there's blas there's blasphemies taking place." I've had demons tell me, "You can't get rid of us. We've been here too long, and you're not strong enough." But one of the important things is really not to focus on what demons are saying because the devil is the father of all lies. So I don't want to get caught up in like, wow, look at what the devil is saying or this demon is saying. The focus should always be on the power of God that is at work in this particular prayer of the church. So the focus always needs to be on God. A good example of that I learned early on when I was training in Rome and one of the persons that I was able to uh, witness the exorcism being performed on started to levitate during the prayers. And the priest who was training me was unfazed. I think I'm looking over there with my jaw wide open, like, what in the world is that? And the priest training me just reaches over, puts his hand on the head of the person, pushes him back and down in the chair, and doesn't even, you know, blink an eye. Like, really? That's all you got? And really just continue to pray and to stay focused on what God was doing. So J.W. actually has a question, uh, a theological question. He says, he or she, were all demons formerly angels that decided to rebel against God? Were they all once good beings, and was there a real war in heaven? And the answer would be uh, yes, because uh, God only creates good. You know, people will ask the question, did God create demons? And the answer is no. So when God created the angelic world, and gave them this infused knowledge, he also gave them free will. You know, God doesn't want to compel anyone to honor or glorify him, to worship him. He gives us that free choice. So God created the angels, gave them all this knowledge of the natural world, and then basically said, will you now honor and glorify me? And the belief is that Lucifer, who was the greatest of all of God's created angels, the Catholic Church would say there's a hierarchy within the angelic world, and uh, he chose to rebel against God. You know, the book of Revelation says that his tail swept one-third of the stars out of the sky, and that's our belief that it's a reference to the fall of Lucifer and one-third of the angels. And then Lucifer, which is a name, ironically, that means light, now is associated with darkness because he's no longer... Uh, you know, receiving illumination from God, if you will, because he chose to rebel against God along with one-third of the angels. And so they fall into a world of darkness, 
and then they try to trip humans up so that we ourselves would make the same poor choice that they themselves have made. A good way to think about it, too, is oftentimes if you see a, an image of a saint, there's always a halo around their head. That halo is not their glory that they're radiating. It means that they've drawn so close to God and uniting their will with the will of God that they begin to radiate the glory of God. And because Satan chose not to unite his will with God, then he fell into a world of darkness. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I have eight brothers and sisters. My brothers and I used to like to take these little balls that would glow in the dark and we would put them up against the lamp so that it would absorb the light and then we'd turn the light off and then it would glow. But over a period of time, what would happen? The glow would start to go out unless we put it back up against the light. You could say that the devil no longer puts himself up against the light of Christ. And so he began to fade out, if you will, and then eventually lapsed into complete darkness because God is no longer there by his choice to, uh, to illumine him. So we've got actually another question from Dominique, Dominique S. He says, what do you suggest if someone is pretending to be a friend but is targeting you with occult attacks, sending demons using occult numbers when you talk? Well, I would say that that's certainly not someone that you want to be a friend. That's a relationship that I would look for a, an immediate exit. And then I would just make sure that you're standing strong in your own faith. You know, we can't control what another person does. They can wish us ill will and try to curse us or send demons our way. But as long as we're standing strong in our faith, we have nothing to fear. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, put on the armor of Christ. You know, if we're doing that, we, evil is nothing to fear. Psalm 91, you know, I need not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. Again, if our focus is on God and somebody's trying to send evil our way, that evil won't have any impact on us whatsoever. Because again, we're wearing that armor that St. Paul speaks of. So this is actually a, a good question from JW. He says, have you ever heard of demons being able to use technology such as cell phones and text messaging? <clears throat> Yes, I think that uh, demons will take advantage of any opportunity to try to uh, get a hold of, get a hold of us, if you will. Demons, by nature, are very intellectual. Again, it goes back to their nature receiving this infused knowledge. You know, Saint Thomas Aquinas, in talking about the angels, it can get kind of heady, but he says the knowledge of the natural world he called it evening knowledge. And then accepting things according to God's plan is morning knowledge. If you think about the story of creation, it was always evening came and morning followed. Then it was the new day. So when God created the angels and gave them this infused knowledge, evening knowledge, God basically said, with the knowledge I've given you, will you now choose to honor and glorify me? And then two-thirds said yes. They arrived at morning knowledge and became perfected. And then one-third, along with Lucifer, said no and became imperfect creatures. And again, because they're trying to trip us up, they'll use any means whatsoever. So technology, cell phones, text messaging. Because what have these things done? People today are growing up in front of the screen. We're living in isolation. You, know, you watch people using technology. Oftentimes, they just want to be left alone by themselves. 
And again, the human person, we're social creatures. Technology has its place. It's not inherently evil, but how we do use it could be an opportunity for the devil to try to, to get a hold on us. You think of the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. You know, people talk about the fruit of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Most people call it an apple, if you will. Now, an apple is not inherently evil, but they use it as something to be disobedient to God with. So technology is not inherently evil, but we can use it in such a way that uh, it uh, weakens our commitment to God and perhaps creates a stronger link with the devil and his demons. So this is a question from Joshua J. 5646. I saw this in the live chat. I wanted to ask it. He says, what is Father Lampert's longest exorcism? And he says, enjoying these interviews. <laughs> well, it depends. Each time I pray with somebody, the exorcism prayers, usually it's maybe 30 to 60 minutes. And then after that period of time, I may schedule another time to meet with them. So I would never pray with somebody 10 or 12 hours or more. I don't really find that to be effective. But I did pray with somebody over the course of one year that was possessed by seven demons. The weakest demons are always the first to go. And it is important to know that when somebody is possessed, rarely is it a case of one demon. Oftentimes it's many. And just as much as there's a hierarchy in the angelic world, there is a hierarchy in the demonic world. So the demons that are of a higher rank, if you will, they're always the last to go. They're more entrenched or defiant. The weakest ones are always the first to go. So praying with this person over the course of a, a year, the weakest demons had gone. There was one dominant demon that remained. It identified itself as the demon Leviathan, which is mentioned in the Bible. And it told me it did not have to leave because it had been invited in. Demons can be very legalistic. And it was true in this particular case that the person actually invited the demon into their life. But an exorcism can be viewed as a command to the demon to return to God, which that it has stolen, namely a person created in the image and likeness of God. A person can invite, invite a demon in, but a person can grow in holiness and virtue and want to change. And so for at least, you know, conversion, we would say, is an ongoing process. Just because somebody did something to open up an entry point to evil doesn't mean that they can make they cannot make the choice to close that entry point. And an exorcism is an opportunity to close that entry point, but also as an opportunity then for that person to grow in holiness and virtue in their relationship with God. So in that case, I would pray with somebody 30 to 60 minutes. The longest exorcism took over a year. The shortest one, by the way, took 45 minutes. And that's the one earlier when I mentioned the demon looked at me and said, you can't get rid of us. You're not strong enough, and we've been here too long. And during that particular exorcism, when I called on the Holy Spirit and breathed on the face of the person, the, the chair they were sitting in flew back and hit the wall. About 10 feet, the person uh, let out a shriek, and then they came out of the chair and collapsed on the floor, and the demon was gone. And myself and the other priests lifted the person from the floor, and their face was shining as brightly as the sun. Again, we go back and think of that glory of God that this person is now radiating. 
and that's a good indication that the devil, the demon, is no longer present. In my experience, just like in the Gospels, when a demon is cast out, there's always some type of shriek, if you will, because the demon has reached the point where it can no longer resist the power and the authority of Christ. Wow. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's move on to uh, the next question from Sergio. And this is a really good one. It's a very common question I think a lot of people have. Should we be afraid of demons? Absolutely not. Don't even need to hesitate on that. You know, demons are nothing to fear. You know, the devil always wants to present himself as something more than he is. And I think that's probably why I'm more public in talking about uh, what the Catholic Church believes about exorcisms because I want to debunk a lot of the myths. You know, the devil would prefer actually to work in the shadows, because when you drag him out into the light, you really come to realize that uh, his bark is worse than his bite, shall we say. So the more that we understand about him, the the more that we come to know that he's nothing to fear. I can give an example. I was was thinking real quickly of uh, a saint of the church, uh, St. Padre Pio, he used to call the devil Old Bluebeard, and uh, he believed that he was afflicted, not because of anything that he had done wrong, but God permitted him to be afflicted by evil as an opportunity for him to show his fidelity to God. Think of Job out of the Old Testament, same category. St. Paul, as well, talked about the thorn in the flesh that he received, a messenger from Satan sent to torment him to keep him from becoming proud. So the church would say in the lives of the saints, many of them were afflicted by evil. Padre Pio called the devil old bluebeard. He said one night he was trying to sleep. He heard all this noise in his room. He turned over and looked and said, oh, it's only you, old bluebeard. I thought it was somebody important. Then he rolled over and went back to sleep. Now, how many of us would have that mindset if we believe the devil was actually in our rooms? Most of us would be terrified. But again, if we reach the point in knowing the devil for who he truly is. He's nothing to fear, especially if our relationship with Christ is where it needs to be. All right, let's get to the the next question from Kaluuya. I think that's the way to say this. Kaluuya Noel, is there something I can do to secretly expel demonic activity in someone? I suspect a demon infestation in a family member that rejects Christianity. Well, A Catholic perspective would be that you cannot perform an exorcism on somebody against their will. Again, we have free will. Someone can make the choice for Christ or they can make the choice against Christ. But we can certainly pray for that person, praying that they come to a better understanding of why it's important to have a relationship with Christ. So even though we may not be able to cast out a demon, because again, if there's no willingness for the demon to be gone, then it cannot be cast out. I talked with an elderly man one time at the request of his family because uh, they said he has no faith and we're concerned that when he dies, what will happen to his soul. And as I was talking with him, the man told me that he had befriended demons throughout his life, but when he died, he had no desire to be with God. He actually wanted to spend eternity, he told me, with the devil and the demons that he had befriended in this life. Now, I hear that, and I think, wow, that's crazy talk. But again, that's the choice that he's making with his own free will. Certainly, I would pray for him that he would have a change of heart and a conversion. 
and welcome Christ into his life. But again, you think of scripture, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't kick the door in and say, here I am to save the day. We have to invite him in. He desires that we have that relationship with him, but we have to, to want it. He doesn't force it upon us. So this question is from QQ minus S again, and this is a little bit off topic, but I'm curious to hear what your answer is. He says, are you qualified to answer why, when Judas needed to be replaced, the church of, in Jerusalem chose the casting of lots to select his replacement? Yeah, and I think when people hear the casting of lots, and that's true, because Matthias was chosen, I think there were two that they had kind of whittled it down to and then said they cast lots, and the choice went to Matthias. But again, I think we need to, in this understanding, the casting of lots is not relying on the power of evil, but somehow the belief of the day was that the power of God was behind that practice. And that's always a, an important distinction to make is what's behind that. A good example I think of when Moses in the Old Testament goes to Pharaoh and says, God says to let my people go, the staff in Moses' hand changes into a serpent, but Pharaoh's magicians are able to do the exact same thing. So both of their staffs turned into serpents, but what's the distinction? Moses was a man of God, whereas Pharaoh's magicians were not. So in the case of casting lots to find a replacement for Judas, the belief was that it was the power of God that was behind that practice, and the selection then was made to go to Matthias. But again, it's what God was doing, not the power of evil. I was reading a uh, biblical commentary on that passage, and they said roughly the same thing. That the belief back in the day was it was all about God's providence and how he providentially structured the world that he set up and created. And so the casting of lots was seen as just sort of an outworking of the same thing, like God was still in charge of the lots and what would happen there. And so they, that's the way that they... That's, that's just the way that they viewed it back then. So it was it was still very much uh, integrated with their theology. All right, so uh, GK, think, go ahead. Yeah, but I was going to say real quickly that ultimately the focus is on where is the power coming from. And in that case, the power is coming from God and not from the evil one. So GK asks, uh, does the average practicing Christian or Catholic have any, have any for or authority to exercise? Uh, for example, over minor demons, etc., to what extent? So well, I think the, the question is just, yeah, how, how, how much power does the average person have? I think the average person has some power, obviously, by virtue of our baptism. You know, when we're baptized, we die to ourselves, we put on Christ. So again, but we always have to make sure the focus is on the power of Christ that is at work within us, and not thinking that the power resides with us. And I think sometimes that's the fine line that people walk. You know, when it comes to minor demons, you know, initially one may not understand fully what they're dealing with. Is it a minor demon? Is it a major demon? Who knows? And that comes about in just working with the person and following a process to understand exactly what is taking place. But certainly I would say there are two types of exorcisms. There's a supplicating exorcism prayer and a major exorcism. Supplicating prayer is a prayer directed to God who's asked to bring relief into the life of the person. Perhaps thinks of prayers of deliverance. An example would be, God, see how your servant is afflicted. Come to their aid, mighty defender, 
and give them the peace and freedom that you call for all your children to have. Certainly any Christian can pray that prayer. The Catholic Church does caution about people just giving commands to demons randomly, like, I command you. And the danger would be because if a demon manifests, the person has to be willing to follow through then. Because there's a demon that's now manifesting, you can't become terrified and run away. You know, obviously then the person's situation is, uh, you left him in a very dangerous position. So again, the church would say anyone can ask God to help somebody who's afflicted, but at least from a Catholic perspective, only the bishop or the priest that he's authorized should be giving commands to demons. But again, there is a certain level of authority that we all have just based on our, our baptism into Christ. Because ultimately, again, it's Jesus, as I said earlier, who is the main actor. He's not a bystander in this prayer. So Gina comes back and she asked, uh, what, is the, what is the reason the Catholic Church lets you speak out on this matter? It's an opportunity just to educate and teach people. You know, when I, I, you mentioned earlier, I think, you know, when I was appointed, I became one of 12 exorcists in the United States that was uh, officially appointed. Any priest can be called upon by his bishop to do an exorcism, but some bishops will say, you're the go-to person in my diocese. But uh, there, now there's more than 125, because the church realizes that if she doesn't speak out on this matter, to help educate people, then perhaps people will turn to the wrong sources to try to find the help that they're looking for. You know, there's a lot of so-called professional exorcists. People may rely on a median or a psychic. But again, oftentimes in these situations, the person who's already broken or fractured is just going to be broken and fractured even more. Because ultimately, Christ is the one who's going to bring healing into the life of the person who's afflicted by evil. It can come from no other source. It's always Christ. We think of John's gospel. You know, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the focus must always be on Christ. And again, speaking about the topic publicly is an opportunity for people to have a clear understanding of what the church believes and teaches on this subject especially at a time, I think, when there's a greater fascination with the devil today. You look at a lot of programs and articles, you know, there's a lot of fascination with what the devil is trying to do. And hopefully by speaking on the topic, the fascination really then is refocused on the power and the presence of God in our world today. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that my previous interview with you is, you know, coming up on I guess 700,000 views at this point, probably in the next few days. There's a, a, People are re- very, very interested in this kind of thing. So a question from uh, Keenan T, and this one is a really interesting one. What do you think of Ouija boards? Do you have any stories? <laughs> Ouija boards, that would fall under the, uh, the occult. So again, somebody's relying on a game board to try to give them answers to things. And the church would say that the power that's behind that would be the power of the evil one. So they're not like these friendly spirits out there that are just trying to, you know, give you some good guidance and direction. So the power behind them is of an evil nature. You know, oftentimes when people engage in things like Ouija boards, perhaps at first they hear something that's intriguing, it piques their curiosity, 
but then that curiosity leads to reliance, you know, playing with the Ouija board, for an example, and then it becomes a substitute for God in the person's life. You know, the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament in chapter 18, verses 10, 11, and 12, talks about not finding a substitute for God, but always living out the very first of the Ten Commandments, where God says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no false gods. You know, things like Ouija boards and whatnot, people are looking for a substitute for God. You know, we did that as humans from the very beginning. You think of the Israelites in the desert, you know, when Moses went up the mountain to get, you know, the, the Ten Commandments. When he came back down, what were they doing? Worshipping a golden calf. So humans today always trying to find a substitute for God. And a Ouija board is one of those substitutes and it will always end in disaster. I think a lot of so, young kids today play with these. Because they don't, maybe they want to test it out and see if it'll be fun or, I don't know, freaky yeah, or whatever. Sometimes it's like, well, it's entertaining. They may yeah. not understand fully the, the uh, demonic component that's behind it. Now, I will say that just because somebody played with the Ouija board once doesn't mean that somehow I think they're possessed. But I do think that people need yeah. to think about the choices that they're making in their life and if they realize they've done something wrong. The key ingredient, again, is repent, repent. You know, if you read the, the minor prophets in the, the Old Testament, what were they constantly saying to the Israelites? Repent and make a return to God. Repent and make a return to God. And even an exorcism, basically, is the same thing. If somebody has done something to create an entry point to evil, all we have to do is repent, tell God we're sorry, you know, and God's always ready to forgive. Because the greatest thing that we can know in life is not the sin that we commit, not the evil that we engage in, but the greatest thing that we can come to know is God's love and mercy for each and every one of us. Because the human person is God's greatest creation. We're created in the image and likeness of God. And I think that's why the devil tries to afflict us so much. Because in his own twisted sense, he believes that somehow by tormenting humans who are in God's image and likeness, that he believes that he's tormenting and afflicting God himself.